Hi, welcome back and thanks for joining us here today. I'm Jamie and I am a blues disciple. Now please join me for a little while to hear some excellent earlier blues music from one of the masters of the blues. Blues Disciples is a 501c3 nonprofit organization and please note that earphones or earbuds will enhance your listening pleasure. And as you're listening, please click on the playlist to expand its size for easier reading. Folks, our Blues Disciples mission is to entertain you and to help all of our friends and listeners to better understand the origins of African-American blues and gospel music and its importance and impact on American history and our nation during the 20th and 21st centuries. In the early part of the 20th century, one of the very few ways for an African-American woman or man in the South to escape the miserable tenant farmer's life was to find and develop a musical talent and then use their creativity with that talent to differentiate themselves from their peers and climb out of an otherwise dead-end existence. Most of the early blues artists were self-taught, and after many hundreds of hours of practicing late into the night, these artists would develop their skills and artistry into their very own unique style as they wrote and passed around the brilliant music from their own and others' true life experiences. There are almost as many unique stories as there are blues artists. We can all learn and appreciate this important African-American heritage we know as the blues. A couple of weeks ago, we sat down again with my friend and ethnomusicologist, Dr. David Evans, who has spent the majority of his life researching, finding, befriending, working with, writing about, and recording many 20th century blues artists. Much of his efforts dealt with acoustic artists who played in the country blues style. Much of the artist's music Dr. Evans recorded would never have been heard had it not been for his recordings. Dr. Evans' library of recordings and written material is too large to describe here, but can be identified to a large extent in his narrative vitae on our website at bluesdisciples.org under the About Us tab. Blues Disciples has been fortunate to welcome Dr. Evans as co-host on close to 30 of our podcasts focusing on legends such as Booker White, Blind Willie McTell, Blind Willie Johnson, Charlie Patton, Tommy Johnson, Jesse May Hemphill, Mississippi Fred McDowell, and many other blues and gospel artists. And earlier this year, Dr. David Evans received the honor of being inducted into the Blues Foundation's Blues Hall of Fame and recognition of his tremendous contributions over his lifetime to the blues we all love so much. One of Dr. Evans' greatest finds was a gentleman who helped define and validate the blues subgenre and traditions known as Bentonia Blues, which evolved from a small group of artists around Bentonia, Mississippi. That gentleman is Mr. Jack Owens, who was born in Bentonia, Mississippi in 1904 and passed away in 1997 at the age of 92. Now here is Dr. David Evans to tell us more about Bentonia Blues. Bentonia Blues was really known strictly through uh, Skip James, whose old 78s made in 1931, I believe it was, were being reissued in the early 1960s. Devil Got My Woman, of course, attracted a lot of attention, uh, Hard Time Killing Floor and other great pieces. And these reissues on the Origin Jazz Library label led to his 
rediscovery in 1964 by John Fahey, Bill Barth, and Henry Vestine. So uh, Skip James had this spectacular debut at the Newport Folk Festival, and that led to some more recording of Skip and some touring. And of course, biographical information began to filter out. Uh, It turned out that Skip was from the town of Bentonia, Mississippi, which is about 40 miles uh, north of uh, Jackson, the the capital city, kind of on the edge of the delta. Bentonia is in the hills, but if you go a little further to the north, you hit the Yazoo River and you on the other side is Yazoo City, which is in the delta. And Skip was going on tour. I got to see him in Cambridge, Massachusetts in either later 64. I didn't get to go to the Newport Folk Festival, but uh, because I had a summer job at that time, but I did meet him at events in the Cambridge area, I, I think in late 64 and in 1965, certainly. And then in the summer of 1965, I left Cambridge. I graduated from college and went to grad school at UCLA. So I drove across country to Los Angeles in August of 65. And uh, Kip James came to LA for a, uh, I think about a three-day residency at the Ashgrove, not a coffee house, but a folk club there. And they needed a place for him to stay. It was the custom at the Ashgrove to get uh, artists, particularly older traditional artists, to stay with somebody involved in the folk scene. And that person would host the artist and get them to the gigs on time and so on. So they needed a reliable person. So that fell to me. And I had a little place in Venice, California, and uh, Al Wilson was rooming with me in the first half of 65. So in March of 65, Skip James stayed with me and Al for three days. And of course, we used the opportunity to interview him. Uh, We knew he was from Bentonia and knew some other details of his life that had been published. And I was already planning a field trip for later in 1966 in the uh, summer. And I certainly had the idea from Skip James's songs that while he was a very distinctive artist and his songs were sort of highly polished, you might say, that they were also very much a product of tradition. Most of his lyrics were traditional blues lyrics, and I figured that there must be other artists in Bentonia that participated in the tradition that Skip was part of. And so I simply asked him about other artists. It's amazing that all the people that had interviewed Skip and talked to him had never asked him about other artists in his community except ones that he had learned from, Henry Stuckey in particular. And of course, uh, Gail Dean Wardlow had, in fact, found and interviewed Henry Stuckey. Fortunately, Gail didn't have a recording machine and didn't record Henry Stuckey. But I talked to Skip in March when he visited us, and Al and I interviewed, recorded an interview with him and some additional songs. Uh, We concentrated on his gospel repertoire at the time. 
time because his blues repertoire was so well recorded already. But at any rate, uh, Skip told us about two artists in Bentonia that were still active. Uh, One was a younger artist, Cornelius Bright, and one was an artist named Bert Slater, who played guitar and piano. And of course, he told us about Henry Stuckey. So I didn't get to go to the Bentonia area, Jackson area, until August and September of 1966. And that was with Marina Bokelman. And our experiences are described in our co-authored book, Going Up the Country, which came out last year. And we first went to Bentonia with Gail Wardlow, who wanted to see uh, Henry Stuckey. And, you know, as a courtesy, since Gail had met Stuckey, uh, you know, I felt we should work with him and go through him. It was kind of difficult. Uh, (laughs) Gail's approach to recording and interviewing was uh, rather different from mine and Marinas. At any rate, it turned out that Henry Stuckey, unfortunately, had died. Uh, We met his widow who told us that. So he was never recorded musically or the interview. Uh, The interview was all recalled or taken down in notes, uh, I'm not sure which, from by Gail Wardlow. And so it's a great shame, great tragedy that this artist who influenced uh, Skip James, you know, remained unrecorded. But, you know, at least we have something uh, sort of filtered through Gail's reportage, but not as much as we would like to have. We also located Cornelius Bright on that day and never could find Bert Slater. In fact, as it turned out, he moved to Chicago and never got tracked down and undoubtedly is, you know, another tragedy uh, that he never was located and uh, recorded. From there, I asked David to share with us how he met Mr. Jack Owens. We did meet Cornelius Bright. He was working that day, so I arranged to come up and see him. I think it was the next day or a day or two later. In fact, I did come up to see him, and again, there was some problem in recording him, but I persisted, and finally, we recorded him first, I think, at his house in a kind of quiet setting. We recorded a few songs and then went to a party at someone else's house, and it got pretty rowdy, as things usually did, and it became rather difficult to record Cornelius there, although we got a few nice songs. And he told me about Jack Owens and promised to take me there the next day. And so I did drive up from Jackson. Marina was not feeling well that day, so she didn't come. And it was just me and Cornelius and Cornelius's girlfriend. And we drove out in the country to Jack's place. It had gotten dark at that time. And I didn't quite realize that it wasn't a good idea to go visit somebody out in the country after dark. But uh, at any rate, thank God I had Cornelius with him and we knocked on the door and Jack hollered from inside and who is it, you know, and of course Cornelius was a familiar voice. Uh, They were good friends and uh, Jack came to the door, uh, opened it up. His hands were all bloody. He had been cleaning fish (laughs) as it it turned out, but, you know. 
here I was confronted by this person who, you know, was looking at this white stranger, you know, at with blood on his after hands. dark with blood on his hand. Uh, I was a little oh. taken aback by this, uh, naturally. <laughs> it was eventually, you know, we made friends. I don't know if I shook hands, but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> we, we were welcomed in and Jack uh, cleaned up a little bit. You know, after the whole session with Jack, I couldn't get my car started, and but oh. Cornelius managed to get it going and finally wow. took off. But anyway, that was my introduction to Jack Owens, and we only recorded a few songs that night, maybe about half a dozen, mm-hmm. and two of them were issued on the album Going Up the Country that I recorded for the British Decca label, and that was Jack Owens's and Cornelius Bright's uh, introduction to record. Uh, there were also two pieces by Cornelius Bright on that album. Then I asked David about those first recordings of Jack Owens. So how about going up the country, B&O Blues? B&O Blues was one of the first pieces I recorded from Jack. It might have been the first. And it's based on a hit from the early 1930s by Bumblebee Slim. And Jack did a, it was a big hit. And Bumblebee Slim and other artists made a number of follow-up or cover versions of it over the years. And Jack, of course, was attracted to it. Jack didn't do too many covers of other folks' commercial hits, but he did do a few other than the ones that Skip James had recorded that were probably traditional. B&O Blues was one of the few that he did, but of course his version is in open D tuning and he adds other verses drawn from the tradition. So it's a great recording. I think was it uh, Buddy Guy did a cover version somebody suggested and it's on some kind of recording.
From that same recording session, Devil Got My Woman. Devil Got My Woman from 1966. This is the fast version, the version for dancing that Jack played. And he sings in falsetto. Of course, Skip James was known for his falsetto singing, and Jack used it too. It likewise seems to have been something that was commonly used by Bentonia artists. And this is a wonderful recording version of the song. And I don't know of other artists that played it in this fast way. I don't know if Duck does it or not this way. I know he does it in the uh, slower interpretation, but uh, this this is just another aspect of Jack Owens, an incredible uh, artist. I would say he was my greatest find, if you can use a term such as that, discovery. I don't particularly like
Dennis David to tell us a little more about Jack and Jack's longtime playing partner and good friend, Mr. Bud Spires. I came back the next year to record Jack. Again, Marina was not feeling well that night, so she never got to meet Jack. But I went to his place during the daytime and had a longer session, this time with Bud Spires, Jack's harmonica friend. And Bud was the son of Arthur, big boy Spires, although Bud apparently didn't have too much of a relationship with his father. Big boy Spires had left Bentonia or Yazoo City for Chicago, uh, where he kind of established himself on the fringes of the Chicago blues scene. Bud Spires had taken up harmonica playing, and he had started to go blind, I think from uh, hauling bags of chemical fertilizer for a farmer that he worked for. And he lived in uh, right in town in Bentonia, but he would walk out in the country to Jack's place. Uh, he could still see a little and uh, often uh, play with him. Jack kind of took pity on Bud Spires, and uh, although Jack was a real tough guy... He had a, a heart of gold, I would say, and uh, he really kind of took Bud in and uh, encouraged him. And Bud developed a style, I wouldn't call Bud a great harmonica player, but he developed a style that Jack appreciated, and it went with Jack's music in a peculiar way. And uh, they remained friends and partners for the another 30 years or so until the end of Jack's life. And then Bud continued to play for for a number of years with other local artists after that until he passed away. I then asked David about Jack Owen's house and his weekend juke joint. I visited Jack many times over the years. He moved from his house, the original one, which had his front room, his living room, so to speak, turned into a juke house on weekends. He would remove uh, the furniture and just have benches along the walls and had a jukebox in the room. And from a hole in the wall, literally a hole in the wall leading to the kitchen, his wife, Mabel, would sell sandwiches uh, through the hole in the wall. She'd stay in the kitchen. And then I think by 1969, when I visited him again at that place, he had uh, moved a little corn crib to near the house and he uh, ran an electric line out to it and put the jukebox in there and ran that as the uh, juke house. Uh, I think Mabel didn't want it in the house or maybe by that time uh, Mabel had become sick. Uh, she certainly was later on. And for years and years, Jack was devoted to her and would never go away to anything overnight and that's why he didn't tour until she passed away uh, I think uh, around 1990 so yeah he was very devoted to her again as I say you know for the tough guy that he was I mean a guy that carried a pistol in his pocket or in his boot you know he, he had a heart of gold I really admired him for that David then spoke a little about some of the songs he recorded in 1970 for Jack Owen's album titled It Must Have Been the Devil, starting with Can't See Baby. Can't See Baby shows the full extent of Jack Owens' abilities in his open D minor tuning. This is the tuning that most of the songs in the old Bentonia guitar tradition were in, most of Skip James' songs, for example. And both Skip and Jack got some real complexities in this tuning. The thing about open tunings is that they're designed to be played in just one key. So, of course, they aren't in a lot of ways as versatile 
well as other tunings. But within that one key, you can do a lot of things and you can make other chords within open tunings too. And of course, the Skip and Jack both did that. Jack also shows us some very powerful singing in quite a high register. Skip James used a high register, but it was in kind of a head voice in his early 1930s session for Paramount. And then in his rediscovery period, it was actually in a kind of falsetto. But Jack just sings in his, so to speak, real voice, but very, very high and very, very loud on this piece. So it's uh, really quite a showpiece of his talents, although it seems to have a lot of qualities of being partly improvised on the spot. He draws from traditional lyrics. His melody is somewhat similar to that of uh, Skip James's uh, Cherry Ball Blues, but not exactly. It's a real display of the Bentonia blues tradition, you know, in all of its uh, finery.
Jack ain't had no water. Jack ain't had no water is an really unusual piece by Jack. It's played in his D minor tuning, the same one that Skip James used on most of his guitar blues and that seemed to be indigenous to the Bentonia area. It is the tuning is used by other Mississippi performers. Book of White used it. Big Boy Crudup used it. I think I've heard one or two others from other parts of Mississippi play in this tuning, all of them in very different styles from one another. The Bentonia style is quite distinctive and is by far the most elaborate style in that tuning. Most of them, the other players only played one chord pieces, but Jack and Skip James, Cornelius Bright, other players uh, in that tuning, Duck Holmes, nowadays still active, can play or at least suggest other chords or at least a, a four chord. So Jack Ain't Had No Water is an unusual piece, although he also suggests the dominant chord. It's uh, a strong rhythmic piece, and I just love the melody of it, and it's not anything that Skip James played. Jack and Cornelius definitely proved to me that Kip James's music did come out of a local tradition, a, a part of the overall larger uh, blues tradition or country blues tradition. But this piece is quite particular to Jack. I wouldn't doubt that other players, if we could have recorded a dozen players from Bendonia, you know, probably played something like it. But it's uh, this is a real Jack Owens piece, and it's country blues at its best. It's such a lonesome-sounding piece, and I often recorded Jack all by himself way out in the country, and sometimes with, with his wife Mabel in the back room, but just not saying anything. She didn't really like the blues. She was uh, on the on the churchy side, you might say. There was that tension there, but it, it was really lonely out there in the country, and, and this song is about as lonely as it gets. Jack had no water, so they had no Jack had no water, so they had no water. 
about Cherry Ball Blues? Cherry Ball Blues, of course, is a variant of a piece that Kip James recorded back in 1931 and continued to record in his uh, rediscovery period. Some other artists had recorded variants uh, of it, or at least had used the Cherry Ball theme. I think Cherry Ball is just a piece of candy, hard candy, but it became a nickname for a girl or a girlfriend, somebody sweet, you know, obviously. And Jack's version is quite different lyrically from the skips other than the title verse and uh, it's got a different feeling from it and again it suggests that this was probably a traditional theme or a traditional verse at least and, and maybe a melody in the Bentonia area that both Jack and Skip drew upon. Uh, Skip's piece is a little more refined and polished. Jack would sort of sing the opening verse and then other verses variously drawn from tradition from it and he had different ways of playing it. Uh, Jack, in fact, had multiple ways of playing many of his songs, at least two ways, uh, one for listening and one for dancing. And a number of blues artists, uh, Tommy Johnson apparently, had that too.
Good morning, little schoolgirl. Good morning, little schoolgirl. This is one of Jack's handful of songs drawn from another specific recorded source. And in this case, it would be Sonny Boy Williamson's uh, 1937 recording of Good Morning Schoolgirl. That's uh, Sonny Boy number one. Both Sonny Boys were famous harmonica players and singers and songwriters. The first one was from Jackson, Tennessee. I'm sure Jack uh, never met him, but he would have heard his records in the 1930s and 1940s. And this was, in fact, Sonny Boy's first record, one side of it, and a very, very big hit that led to his recording career and a whole string of hits. So Jack actually sings a melody somewhat like that of his devil blues. So he's changed it, he's personalized it, and he's put the piece into the Bentonia tradition. In fact, he adds traditional verses to it. He departs considerably from Sonny Boy's original after the opening lyric and some allusion to Sonny Boy's melody for the piece. Of course, uh, Sonny Boy was a harmonica player, and Bud Spires, the harmonica player of Bendonia, uh, Jack's partner, plays on this, but he doesn't play at all like Sonny Boy Williamson's style. He plays in his own style that was basically suited for Jack. Bud really came up under Jack and developed a harmonica style specifically for Jack's blues sound, and he was content to do that, and uh, I think Jack sort of felt that he had raised Bud in a musical sense, and uh, in some other ways, too. Uh, Jack was very good to Bud. I mean, Bud looked after Jack in a sense, but Jack very much looked after Bud. Bud was pretty much blind. He would have been legally blind, although he could still do a bit of work, and playing music was a source of income besides welfare and charity, and it gave Bud uh, a certain dignity, I think, in the community to have a, a role, a job, uh, so to speak. And uh, so it, it was a good partnership. And Bud lost a real friend when Jack passed away. But uh, they had been partners for some 30 years. You know, that's a long oh, musical yeah. partnership. And most of it got documented from time to time.
Before we wrap up this podcast, I do want to let you know that our next podcast, number 235, will feature the remainder of the published recordings that were made of Mr. Jack Owens by Dr. David Evans, and we want to thank David again for his time and information he shared for this podcast and for the incredible contributions he has made to many aspects of the blues and the lives and careers of the many blues artists he has worked with and for. Now again, here's Dr. David Evans, and thank you very much for listening. How about the instrumental, Nothing But Note? Yeah, this is Jack just playing around in open D tuning, and he did this instrumental piece. It was just a spontaneous thing he did. I, I left the recording machine on, and at the end, he sort of pronounced Nothing But Notes.
ಕೊಡ್ತೀವಿ ನಾವು